God is good. All the time. He's been that way since the beginning. In fact, this morning we're going to go back to the beginning. We're going to start uh, through the book of Genesis. This morning we're just going to introduce the book. I don't know how many of you saw the movie quite a few years ago, uh, The Gods Must Be Crazy. That was a surprisingly funny movie. <laughs> the, the, the premise of the movie is this guy's flying over South Africa in a private plane. He's flying over an area that's inhabited exclusively by Bushmen. He's drinking a Coca-Cola out of a bottle, finishes it up, and he shoves it out of the little window in the private plane, and it falls to earth right next to a Bushman. He picks it up and assumes it's a gift from the gods. And so he's got this wonderful gift from the gods. And he takes it back to his village. And they try to figure out what it means and what it's for. And they, they, they start uh, using it for all kinds of things. It kind of shows the impact on these people of having this gift from the gods. Uh, like I said, it is surprisingly funny. They, uh, they, you know, they, they try to figure it out. And, and they use it for all of these ingenious purposes. It's the hardest object they've ever found. So they pound things with it. They make music by blowing into it. They use it as a print to make designs. They use it to, to, to stretch snake skins over. and They use it for all kinds of things. It becomes the most valuable, useful tool in their possession. But over time, they begin to squabble over it. and Somebody uses it and hits the other person with it. And it becomes a weapon. And suddenly this thing that was such a wonderful gift begins to cause so many problems, so much pain and disruption. They uh, decide to uh, have one of uh, the men take it to the end of the earth and throw it off. He goes to, I think it's Victoria Falls. He heads out to get rid of this thing. They don't want it anymore. Now what a picture of life. We've been given this thing called a life. And we don't really know what it's for. Just like for them, by the time we got it, it was emptied of its original contents. Just like they didn't, had never had anybody who saw how it was originally used. We had nobody there when it was created. We don't know how it was originally created and what it was originally created for. And we come up with all kinds of ingenious uses for it. Some of them wonderful, some of them great, some of them foolish. We use it for good, we use it... For bad, but ultimately we don't have a clue just by ourselves. We, uh, we, we have this thing, sometimes we begin to fight over it, quibble over it, use it to hurt each other, and sometimes we'd like to just go to the end of the earth and throw it back off. And a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, we talked a little about uh, Cole Community Carl, Cole Community Carol. Talked about how complicated and, and hard life can become. And we asked the question, why? How did it get that way? Well, what we need to do is to go back to the beginning and find out from the one who made us what he had in mind. So we're going back to the book of beginnings, to Genesis, to, to look at what the original intent, what the original plan was for us, and to, to try to discover how things got where they are now. Find out what the plan is to return us to our original design. Genesis is the book of beginnings. In fact, in Hebrew, it's just called the beginnings. Uh, Bereshit. In the beginning. The book of Genesis 
is by far the most uh, widely read book in all of history. Over the centuries, it's been copied and printed more than any other book ever as part of a Bible, part of the Old Testament. When people decide that they're going to read the Bible, like any other book, they go to the front. The first words they read are, In the Beginning. But the book of Genesis is also the book that has been more studied, uh, dissected, inspected, torn apart, argued over, uh, attacked, uh, debated of any other book in history. In fact, in my little library alone, I probably have 20 books on Genesis. And it's kind of an intimidating task to think through, how do we start? Where do we go with this? There's so much we could be talking about. Let me just start by telling you a little bit of of where we get this book. First of all, this is one of the five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Reminds me of a story I heard about a fellow that decided he was going to read the Bible, find out what it said for himself. So he turned to the front. He said, I started reading Genesis. Boy, I had a tough time. And then I got to Exodus. I didn't think I was going to make it. So when I got to leave it to cuss, I did. <laughs> anyway, it is one of the first five books of the Bible, the five books of Moses. Now, the other four books of Moses, from Exodus on, are all about the, 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 the Exodus. If you remember your history, Moses was the man who God used to lead his people out of Egypt around the middle of the 15th century B.C., around 1450 B.C. And so all of the other books are Moses' eyewitness account of that process, what happened and what God did and what God said and how the people react and what Moses was feeling and thinking at the time. All of the rest of the books are Moses' eyewitness account of everything that happened. But the events in the book of Genesis, the last story ends about 400 years before Moses was born. So where did he get this stuff? And why did Moses put this together? Why did Moses add this to his other four books? Well, let's start with the question, why? From a purely Israelite perspective, the perspective of the Israelites, this book was given by Moses to explain to them how they got where they were. From a geographical perspective, it traces the the movement of humanity, and especially the particular family of humans that the Israelites came out of. It traces it from Eden, which was probably somewhere in Mesopotamia, somewhere in what's now modern Iraq or Iran. traces the movement to Egypt, where the Israelites found themselves. Genesis ends with the death of Jacob in Egypt, and the death of Joseph, his son, who God had used to bring all of the sons of Israel, Jacob's other name, all the sons of Israel to Egypt. It ends in Egypt. But the book of Genesis gives us more than just kind of that geographical movement. It gave to the people of Israel an explanation of how they got where they were spiritually and how the world got where it was spiritually. And really, that's where the meat for us is. On the one hand, Genesis tells us where this physical universe, where this particular earth, this globe came from. tells us where we as humans come from. But it goes farther. It 
tells us why we were designed the way we are, why we are like we are. And it tells us what happened to mess it all up. In the book of Genesis, we have the beginnings of sin. And you have the beginnings of, of humans' attempts to deal with sin, to, to, to offset it, to, 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 to fix it on their own. Humans began to, to generate cities and, and cultures and societies and civilizations and religions and philosophies, all trying to deal with the problems of mankind on their own, fix it themselves. And as a result, Genesis also gives us the beginnings of warfare, of oppression, of, of rebellion, gives us the beginnings of the confusion of society, of sexual confusion. Gives us the beginnings of bigotry, hatred. So again, we go back to understand how things got the way they are. But probably the most important thing we'll see in Genesis is not just how things got where they are. What we see also in Genesis is the beginnings of God's plan to fix it. It reveals not only his character in creation and in the beauty of creation and the wisdom of creation. It reveals his loving character in redemption. You see, immediately after the first sins, God came and he made promises. And he asked only that human beings trust him. And over time, those promises were repeated. And again, all that God asked is for people to trust Him, to trust His promises, to trust His Word, ultimately to trust Him. As the book of Genesis goes on, we see those promises developed and clarified. and We see the line of promise identified. It will come through Shem. The, the, the line of, prophets will be, or, or, of promise will be through the Semites. And we see the calling of Abraham. God called him to trust Him. We're told that Abraham believed God. Abraham trusted God. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham had a relationship with God. And it began to change him. It began to restore him to his original purpose and design. And we're told that those promises were repeated to his son, Isaac, the son of promise. And to his son, Jacob, the one who was also known as Israel. And to his son, Judah, the one through whom the Messiah would come. And then that's kind of where the book of Genesis ends after the blessing of, 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 of uh, Jacob's sons and, uh, in Egypt. But Scripture goes on to repeat those promises though, and, and to clarify them, to expand upon them till they come to the one in whom all the promises are fulfilled, to Jesus Christ. But again, Genesis tells us very clearly that all that God asks of humans is that we trust Him. We put our trust in His answer to our problems. And ultimately we see that as Jesus Christ. We put our trust in Him, our confidence in Him, that God will fix it. Just as with Abraham, what he asks, simply that we trust Him. See, ultimately the why of Genesis goes beyond just explaining to the Israelites where they come from and how they got where they are. The why of Genesis is God gave it to us so that we would understand ourselves, why we are the way we are, 
and what's happened. And that we would stop our destructive attempts to fix it by ourselves, keeping God away. And turn to Him and trust. Trust Him. Respond to Him with gratitude, with, 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 with faith. Trusting what He did through His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. To remove the obstacle of sin. To restore us to Himself. See, ultimately the purpose of Genesis is to show us who we are and why we need a Savior. To show us how God has provided generously, wonderfully in His Son, Jesus Christ, so that we can put our confidence in Him. And here's where the rub comes in. Here's where the problem comes in. You see, ultimately the book of Genesis shows us that what God asks for us is us to trust Him and that He will fix it. But we also see in the book of Genesis that most people do not want that. Most people do not want to trust God. They want to solve it themselves. And so we as humans keep coming up with religions and philosophies and cultures and civilizations, all in an attempt to, to mitigate the problem of sin, all in an attempt to, to control it, to protect ourselves and take care of ourselves. And again... That explains why our world is in the shape that it's in. Because all of our attempts to fix it ourselves are also attempts to edit God out of the equation. Edit God out of our lives and our culture and our society. In the, in the first five chapters of Romans, the Apostle Paul summarizes the arguments of Genesis. He's developing a larger argument. And he starts by explaining the truths of Genesis. He talks about creation, he talks about Adam, he talks about Abraham, all to establish the beginning place so that we'll see what humans are like and realize that our only hope is faith in Jesus Christ. But let me read a little bit of what Paul says in in summarizing Genesis, especially in in, in this tendency in us to try to edit God out. Romans 1. Verses 18 through 25. Paul writes, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they have become fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. And he talks a little more about the, the sexual sins that humans are given over to, enslaved by. And in verse 28, he picks it up again. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, to retain the knowledge of God, 
He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of others who practice them. I want you to think just for a second about that description. This is, a, this is the story of Genesis. This is the explanation of Genesis. It was true in the days of Genesis. But this is the same story we read in our newspapers. We see in our families, in the struggles in our society. I think it's interesting that Paul argues very clearly that humans from the beginning have known the truth. In ancient society, Paul's argument is the truth about God was there, both in God's revelation and in creation. They could look around and learn something. They not only knew that God was God, they knew that He was powerful. Look at the majesty of creation. They knew He was good. Look at the beauty of creation, the generosity expressed in creation. But... Because humans did not want to give God thanks in their ingratitude, because they didn't want to give Him the glory, but keep the glory for themselves, we're told that God gave them over to their beliefs. They begin to believe lies, and they genuinely believed them. Mankind began to generate other explanations for creation in all the mythologies of the ancient world. They begin to, to come up with other philosophies, other ways of protecting themselves by gathering into cities and developing culture, developing civilization. All as an attempt to take care of themselves apart from God and to get the glory for it themselves. Now, in ancient times, they did it by the worship of idols and pantheons of, of, of nature gods. Uh, usually worshipped in the form of a, of a human figure or of an animal or of some monster hybrid between the two. But the fact is that even those idols stood for the forces of nature. Those idols were, were merely a, a, a personification of the forces of nature, of the storms and of fire and of earth, of earthquakes and all of the deities really are the personification of the forces of nature. All of the ancient religions, all the ancient philosophies really revolved around a pre-existent matter that these deities, these gods, these forces of nature then formed over time into to the forms that we have now, into the world that we know, into people who are like we know them to be. See, the bottom line is all of, of the philosophies and religions of the ancient world were evolutionary. That matter existed eternally. It was preexistent. And these forces of nature identified with their gods formed that matter into the world we now know and experience. And they begin to, to worship these forces, these gods behind the evolutionary process. 
They tried to appease them. And, and as a result, all of the destructive, depraved, degrading, heartless behavior of the ancient world. Now again, this is what's true in our own society. Most people today, they don't worship idols, though, to be very honest with you, we're moving toward that. That's becoming more and more common. But, but we still worship nature. Uh, people talk about what nature has done, what nature has created, what nature has given, or what evolution has created. In the very language that's used, if, if, if you watch a, a nature show... They can't talk about these things without talking in ways that give purpose and intent and creativity to these forces out there. The deification of nature or of evolution. Again, as was true in the book of Genesis, that people knew the truth. That God was God and that God was powerful, that God was good. Our society knew the truth, not just those things from creation, but we had the further, the ultimate revelation of the truth in Jesus Christ. We saw God's true heart of love, of willingness to give Himself. And yet we as a society suppress that truth. We develop philosophies, theories, in order to edit God out of the equation, edit God out of our lives. The fact is, God has given us as a society over to these things, where our society genuinely, honestly believes these lies. The result is what we see happening. The result is the same heartless, depraved, destructive, degrading behavior. People suppress the truth. Civilization Culture is dedicated to it because there is, as we see in Genesis, a drive in humanity to edit God out of our lives and our thinking. Either to give Him thanks, to give Him glory, to put our faith in Him. Now that leads us to the question of how Genesis came to be. Like I said, the first five books are eyewitness accounts. But how did we get a Genesis? And the reason this fits in here is because much of the controversy today around Genesis is an attempt to discredit it as a book, as having any credibility, any reliability. Let me tell you kind of where that came from, just as briefly as I can. As I can. During the Enlightenment, which followed on the heels of the Renaissance, the Renaissance was a return to studying, reading, being exposed to Greek philosophy, Greek religion. And Greek philosophy and mythology was thoroughly evolutionary, explicitly so. During the, the, the Renaissance, the, the, these documents were, were re-looked at and studied, and it became uh, more and more fashionable to, to, to move in the direction of, of embracing evolutionary thought. That was passed on to the Enlightenment. And one of the uh, men who opened the door to the Enlightenment, a man by the name of Spinoza, Baruch Spinoza, who was himself a, a pantheistic evolutionist, he was the first to see the problem of Genesis. 
Spinoza was kicked out of his synagogue somewhere around 1650 for his heresies. But he knew that if Genesis is true, with its assertion that in the beginning God created, then his belief in the preexistence of, of, of matter and the, and the evolutionary forces molding that matter, that that as an explanation for our origins could not be true. It's either one or the other. And he was the first in Western civilization to seriously question the credibility of Genesis. He argued that Moses couldn't possibly have written it and that it's just a, a gathering, a, an accumulation of myths and allegories. Like I said, up till Spinoza, there was no serious challenge to Mosaic authorship. But since him, for the last 300 years, there has been a relentless onslaught of attempts to discredit and destroy the credibility of the book of Genesis. Probably the most popular and most common today is what's called the JEDP theory. It's also known as the Graf-Wellhausen hypothesis. What this is, is about 100 years ago, a little more, some scholars who were studying the book of Genesis who really were not believers, but they were looking at it and they noticed that there were slight differences in style and vocabulary throughout the book. And they noticed that, that often there would be a different name for God used in different places. And their hypothesis was, well, that makes it obvious that one man didn't write this. In fact, the way this theory developed was that every time you see a different name for God, J for Yahweh or, or, or Jehovah, E for Elohim, every time you see a different name for God used, that must be a different editor or a different redactor who was going back and taking this material and reworking it for their own political purposes, to inject their own ideas in there so that their philosophies would gain ascendancy in, in the intellectual world. They argued that this was written at least a thousand years after Moses, and that these different redactors, these different editors, were doing this a thousand years afterwards. Well, they never thought, it never occurred to them that Moses was perfectly capable of using many different names for God. And today we have so much more archaeological evidence, so much more ancient writing, that it's very clear that the norm in the writing of the ancient Near East is to use multiple names of whatever deity is being talked about. It's common. It's the practice in all of the ancient texts. But what, having that information has not stopped the critical uh, approach to Genesis. The next generation said, well, okay, that may be true. But see, like everything else, religion evolved. And what you have in Genesis is religion evolves from pantheism, for belief in these nature gods... And it gets more sophisticated into this monotheism, which is the height of religion. And obviously what we have in Genesis is an attempt by monotheists to inject that belief back into history, to make it the original, and make it look like that was the original. Well, again, further anthropological studies really make it clear that religion did not evolve from pantheism to, to monotheism. It, in fact, devolved from monotheism into a pantheism. In fact, in all the ancient religions, the, the vestiges of the belief in the supreme spirit, the one God, the high God, are still there. And, and in the historic records, you see over and over, like you do with the people of Israel, how quickly 
It went from a belief in one God to a worship of these idols. In a single generation, how fast it happened in their experience and how fast it happened historically. So again, that theory didn't work so well. So it came up with another theory. They used to argue that Moses absolutely could not have written Genesis. Because there wasn't writing in Moses' day. Moses was about, what, 3500 uh, B.C. And there wasn't writing back then. Well, again, further archaeological evidence makes it clear that there was writing for several thousand years before Moses. Uh, one of um, the experts in the field of, of evolutionary anthropology, a man, an atheist himself, Ralph Linton, writes, Writing appears almost simultaneously some five to 6,000 years ago in Egypt, Mesopotamia, and the Indus Valley. Suddenly, boom, there was writing everywhere. The problem is, you see, one theory after another is refuted and falls only to be replaced by two or three more. It just keeps coming. And today, these theories are believed uh, on the sheer weight of their numbers alone. Some of these theories uh, are absurd. Some are more serious and have some substance to them. But nobody is stopping to ask, what are the assumptions, what are the presumptions on which these theories are based? There's a relentless, constant putting forward of these theories. No matter how many fall, more come up. Because what's behind the theories ultimately, ultimately, is an attempt to edit God out of creation and edit God out of our lives. The fact is that Moses is the one responsible for the book of Genesis in the form that we have it. And Genesis still stands with its simple assertion that in the beginning, God created. It starts with God and establishes God's claim on his creation. Ultimately, all the other theories are attempts to edit God out. To suppress this knowledge because human beings do not want to acknowledge God nor submit to him. Now notice that even though in Moses' day all of the theories, all the philosophies of his day were evolutionary. He didn't argue with them all. He didn't try to refute them all. Why not? Because it would have done no good. Had he done that, more would have sprung up. It just constantly takes place. You see, he simply asserts, in the beginning, God created. He lays out the simple truth. The fact is that intellectual arguing, that intellectual debate ultimately cannot solve the issue. doesn't mean we as Christians close our eyes, cover our ears, and run into the hills. We refuse the conversation, refuse the exploration. We don't serve God by, uh, by pretending, by altering facts, by refusing to look at things as they are. But at the same time, it's critically important that we distinguish between facts and interpretation of facts that are used to support a giver. Faith is not blind. There's not an opposition between faith and reason. The two are consistent, and we should have our eyes wide open, our hearts honest, and enter in the discussion clearly. 
I am extremely grateful for uh, theologians, scientists out there who are involved in the debate. I've read uh, several books discussing the, the evidence and showing that there's more than one interpretation of the facts. And many books that argue, at least convincingly to me, that creation is a preferable scientific theory to evolution. But quite honestly, um, I'm no good at holding on to this scientific arguments and facts. I know that there's a lot of you out there with more gray matter than I and more disciplined uh, intellects than I that could get up here and lay out argument after argument that refutes evolution as a theory of origins, evolution as we know it today. I can't do it. I can't keep track of the facts. I get them all messed up. There's one argument that, I, that, that in one of the books I read that, that was particularly, that had a particular impression on me, that was the evolution of the eyeball. This argument went that, that um, for an eyeball to be of any value to an organism, what ha would have to evolve simultaneously is an optical nerve, a cornea, a retina, an iris. All of these would have to happen at once. Otherwise, the organ would do the organism no good. And, and the argument went, not only did this have to happen, evolve all at once in, in humans, in mammals, but it also had to happen in, in reptiles and birds and fish, even in insects. And the argument was taking the statistical probabilities of that. And it said even if you had, you know, like a bazillion years, the, the, the fact is that it is statistically impossible, no matter how much time you have, that this would happen. But obviously from my argument, using technical terms like bazillion and other, uh, <laughs> other scientific terms, you can see why I don't stand up and try to convince you from science. Because I can't do that. It's not my field of study. And, and, and um, ultimately, I recognize that it won't ultimately convince people. But I am grateful. It's enough for me to know that there are serious scientists out there engaged in the debate. I love to be exposed to some of this information. It's enough for me to know that these theories which edit God out can be and are being refuted. But again, the problem is that even as they are more theories come up. You got your Big Bang, you got your hopeful monster, you got a new tooth discovered in Africa. There is just an endless, endless stream of piles of theories you cannot keep up. And in the, the society at large, the, the, as each of these theories become replaced with a new one, no one ever challenges the presumption on which they're based. Again, if Mo Moses had refuted all the theories he knew, in his day, there would have just been more. Instead, he just lays out the simple fact. In the beginning, God created. See, Jesus himself does the same thing. He refers to the writings of Moses as Moses. And he refers to his father as the creator. He doesn't get distracted from his purposes. See, Jesus' purpose was that we respond to our Creator God with gratitude, with glory, and with faith. Jesus accepted the Mosaic authorship of the first five books. Of course I do. That leaves us with, still with the question of how did we come by Genesis? Where did we get it? Again, Moses was not born for 400 years 
after the end of, of Genesis? How did he come by this information? Well, there are three possibilities. First of all, it's possible that uh, there was oral tradition. The stories of creation and of, all, of the patriarchs and the ancients were passed down from one generation to another until they came to Moses. And Moses compiled them all under the direction of the Holy Spirit. It could have happened that way. Personally, the problem I have with that is that when you read the histories of Genesis, they sound very much like eyewitness accounts. They're very detailed. They talk about things people were thinking and things that were said in great detail. It sounds like eyewitness accounts. Typically, stories that have been passed on over and over begin to take on mythical attributes that somebody's either purely evil or purely good. The people in Genesis are real people that are brilliant sometimes and stupid other times. They're faithful sometimes and fall into sin at other times. It sounds like historic eyewitness accounts. Well, the second possibility would be that God just simply gave this information to Moses through visions, through dreams, through direct revelation. Because God does that sometimes. We, we see him do that in prophecy. But again, the language of prophecy looks different than the histories of Genesis. And nowhere else in Scripture do we have historic accounts recorded that way. Always in Scripture, historic accounts come from eyewitnesses or from eyewitness accounts that are then edited. I think that's what we have in Genesis as well. Throughout the book of Genesis is a very interesting phrase that is repeated 11 times. Actually, there's 11 times, but nine of them are really significant. Let me read the last one of these phrases. Chapter 37, verse 2. Listen to what it says. Chapter 37, verse 2 says, This is the account or the history of Jacob. This is the account of Jacob. This is what's known as a colophon. A colophon was a little statement that was put at the end of a book or a stack of tablets that told you where that came from, what it was. You know, we put our title in the beginning of a book. They put it at the end. And so what's being implied here is that Moses had this document in front of him. When he was writing the stories of Jacob, he had a written account of Jacob's life, including the death of his father, Isaac. Well, who wrote that? I think it was Jacob. These are his accounts. And working backward from there, you have another colophon in chapter 25, verse 19. This is the account of Isaac, Abraham's son. That's what that verse says. This is the account of Isaac, Abraham's son. Again, here you have the stories mainly of Abraham's life as he had told them to his son Isaac or as Isaac had been there to, to see them happening. So what you have in Genesis is a series of nine of these documents all going back in history, all recorded on, on somewhat indestructible clay tablets. And, and these were passed down all the way to Moses. And Moses sat with these documents in front of him and under the leading of the Holy, Holy Spirit, he edited them and compiled them together. 
This, to some degree, explains a little bit of the differences in vocabulary, the differences in style throughout the book. It's not that there were all these different editors trying to inject their political ideologies into this and, and tearing it apart and re-putting it back together. You have one editor, Moses, but he was using a number of source documents. Now, here's where it gets startling. Working backward from Isaac, you then have the account of Terah. Terah was Abraham's father. That's in chapter 11, verse 27. And then you have the account of Shem. Again, the the father of the Semites, the one through all the Semites uh, descended. That's in chapter 11, verse 10. Then you have the account of the sons of Noah. Chapter 10, verse 1. And then the account of Noah himself. Chapter 6, verse 9. And then the second to the last colophon. is in chapter 5, verse 1. Let me read this to you. Genesis 5, 1 says, This is the book, or the writing, of the account of Adam. Now, it cannot be proved... But I think this is the writings of Adam. His account of what happened to him. Not given orally, but written down. Then the final colophon comes in chapter 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. This is at the end of the, the very first chapter, talking about how God created. God was the only one there. So this account had to come from him. And he either wrote it himself, gave it to Adam to write. But somehow this is God telling what happened. It had to be God because nobody else was there. Now this is amazing stuff. This is amazing possibility. But whether or not you agree with me that uh, Moses had these accounts sitting in front of him going back in history... Still, what we have in Genesis is an accurate account compiled by Moses of the histories of early mankind that explain where we come from, who we are, and what happened to us, why we are the way that we are. It starts with, in the beginning, God. Because even though... It explains where we come from and why we are the way we are. Ultimately, it is about God. His goodness in creation. His delight in His creation of humans. His heartache at our betrayal. His incredible grace in immediately coming and offering to fix it if we will only trust Him. Genesis is history. If it's not Our Lord's sacrifice for us makes no sense. Our Lord Himself accepted these books. And if if He was wrong, how can we trust Him? See, the foundation of all of our beliefs is found in this book. That's why Genesis is quoted about 200 times in the New Testament. Next week, we're going to begin working through the text. And I don't intend to get distracted by all of the controversy about every verse. Like I said, there are volumes and volumes written on these things. But that's not the goal of the text. That's not our goal. Our goal is to understand ourselves better. 
why we are the way we are, our need for a Savior, and to understand our God better, His goodness, His wisdom in creation, but ultimately His grace in redemption, that He came after us and He made promises to us. And He asks only that we believe those promises. Our goal is to move toward trusting Him so that we obey Him, we submit to Him, and really come to know Him ourselves. That's what we're going to be doing over the next weeks and months. Let's pray. Lord, You are God the Creator, the Mighty One, Elohim. You're the Creator of all that is. You created this earth for us to live on. You made Adam from the dust. You walked with Him in the garden. You came for him when he sinned. You're the God of Seth and Enoch and Shem. You're the God who called Abraham out of Ur, made promises to him. You made him the father of all who believe. You're the God of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. You're the God of Moses who led your people out of Egypt. You're the God of Joshua, Gideon, all of the judges. You're the God of David the prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel and the rest. Ultimately, you are the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we worship you. You sacrificed your Son so that we might know you and experience your love. We come to you in him, not by our own ability to fix ourselves, but by the gift of life you give us in Christ. We look forward to being with you in the new heavens and the new earth that you will create, even more beautiful and wonderful than the garden you created on this earth. And we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.